it comes as no surprise that the Kremlin uses fossil fuels to try to blackmail us. Remember that deliveries of Russian gas have been disrupted to Europe because of Russian decisions, not the other way around. The first consequence of the war in Ukraine is that we have to speed up EU being less dependent on Russian fossil fuels. Achieving a climate-friendly Europe by 2050 is the EU's long-term goal. In the short run, it means stopping using fossil gas almost entirely much sooner. To limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels and stay in the Paris Agreement, the demand must end by 2035. Yet amid the Russian invasion of Ukraine, where gas is one resource caught in the war, is Europe phasing it down? We have seen how climate security and energy security have become two sides of the same coin. Although the EU's answer is renewables, ahead of a cold winter, the European Commission has opened the door to a new wave of gas projects. Today, on the Böll Europe podcast, the future role of gas in a climate-friendly Europe. My name is Gail Rago, and this is the Böll Europe podcast, the podcast of the Heinrich Böll Stiftung European Union office in Brussels. Today, to uncover this complex topic, our guests are Julian Schwarzkopf and Tara Connolly. Julian Schwarzkopf works at Environmental Action Germany as a policy advisor on EU energy policy focusing on gas market regulation and energy efficiency. He is the author of The Future Role of Gas in a Climate-Neutral Europe, a report based on the discussions of an expert group convened by the Heinrich Böll Stiftung European Union and Environmental Action Germany. Tara Connolly is a senior gas campaigner with Global Witness. With over 10 years of experience in EU energy policy, she has worked with several environmental NGOs, such as Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth Europe. Julian, Tara, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Julian and Tara, it is clear that the EU must end the unabated fossil use of gas by 2050 to comply with its climate neutrality objective, which also means cutting greenhouse gas emissions much earlier at least 55% by 2035. But amidst the war in Ukraine, where gas is one of the commodities caught in the crossfire, there is a risk of prolonging fossil gas dependence. What are the main challenges for the energy transition in the short run? And are these challenges particularly hard in any specific sector? Tara, maybe we'll start with you. Sure. I think the most important thing for me to say is that this is not just a European crisis. This is a global energy crisis. I don't think we can forget about the impact that this is having outside Europe. You know, when we talk about the global south, we have to remember that they also have energy needs. And if Europe buys up all of the gas all around the world on the global markets, Europe is going to be pushing up the prices for everybody. That means it's not just an energy price crisis or a cost of living crisis, but it's also actually an energy access crisis. The other important thing to remember is that Europe is actually going out into the, the world and looking for more uh, more gas. They're putting pressure, uh, political and economic pressure on other 
parts of the world to develop gas fields specifically for export to Europe. I mean, countries like Senegal, Nigeria, Mozambique, and plenty of others. It's really important that we remember that other countries are already suffering from blackouts. There's, you know, there's street protests, there's political instability. So this crisis is not just about Europe. So in Europe, though, our crisis response cannot be to make things worse. We crucially need to address energy and climate security um, together, or we basically lose both. Um, so nuclear and coal power, for instance, which are now being talked again, are clearly not long-term solutions. We cannot be talking about prolonging phase-out timelines because that will completely eat up the carbon budget we have left to stay within the Paris Agreement targets. Building up massive gas import capacity is not a solution either when all scenarios show rapidly declining EU gas demand in the future. And this trend has even been accelerated by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Since you asked about specific sectors, electrifying and decarbonizing heating is definitely the key challenge, particularly in the context of the current crisis. And it's crucial to bring um, down household energy demand as well and thus help them with their energy bills. So in this context, short-term relief measures are um, justified as well, I would say. But fundamentally, we need to use this crisis to address structural energy policy challenges, uh, energy poverty challenges, rather. Clean heating and good insulation for energy poor households, um, for instance, mean better air quality, lower heating bills as well. And there are examples of sensible short-term measures that can be taken. For instance, the Irish government recently adopted a very quick time, an 80% grant for uh, insulation measures. Solar rooftop initiatives also are effective in the short term. So there are things we can do that address both energy security and the climate crisis. Thanks both for that very useful overview. I think it's so important, Tara, as you've said, for us to also remember that we are all connected globally and to understand how difficult the energy crisis is going to be on the global south. And also really appreciate, Julian, that you gave us good examples, positive examples of some countries that are trying to do a bit better. Julian, in the scenario of a total cutoff from Russian gas deliveries, which is something a lot of us are worrying about currently, in your report, you mentioned that it would strengthen arguments for new fossil gas infrastructure to diversify supply routes. The construction of new pipelines is back on the table, and gas has unfortunately made its way to stay in the EU taxonomy together with nuclear what do you think this means and are we now in the worst case scenario? So I would say overall, we are not in the worst case scenario. The threat to our gas supply um, that um, we're observing has also sparked a lot of positive momentum on renewables and on energy efficiency with the uh, Repower EU package by the Commission set to bring a massive acceleration of the energy transition in those areas. So that's that's good. But where gas specifically is concerned, we are clearly in a bad situation. So we have very gas industry friendly regulation coming in with a gas package, which risks prolonging our dependence on gas for uh, years and, and decades to come and doesn't really do anything to help us um, phase out gas, um, which we urgently need to, to do and not only start uh, thinking and talking about. We have a new infrastructure, gas infrastructure lock-in um, coming with um, all those import projects that are being planned, pipelines, up to 10 LNG terminals uh, in Germany even, which is um, a complete overreaction to the situation that, that we find ourselves in as well. We're even talking about new gas power plants, which doesn't really help us get more gas, but rather consume more gas and thus make us even more energy insecure than 
we already are with the uh, taxonomy facilitating financing for new gas uh, power plants by basically giving them a sustainable or green label. So, um, yes, where um, fossil gas in particular is concerned, we are kind of full speed going in the wrong direction. So, bad situation. Thanks for that. We will definitely be talking about solutions a little bit later, but that does paint a grim picture indeed. Tara, to avoid disruptions to the supply chain, the European Commission came out with measures to secure gas supplies this winter. What is the role of the LNG here? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's fair to say now that we don't need new LNG terminals for this winter. Europe is already importing record levels of LNG with the current infrastructure. You have to remember that in Europe, a lot of LNG terminals were lying idle. They were being mothballed, but now they're being used to import LNG. At the moment, a lot of the gas storage facilities are near full. So Europe is on track to be able to weather this winter, at least. I think it's fair to say, you know, as we've been doing, Europe has needed to import some LNG to make up for lost imports from Russia. But as has already been mentioned by Julian, there are a lot of other options. And as already mentioned, I think we do need to be thinking about the consequences for the global south of Europe, just sort of trying to buy all of the LNG on the market. And indeed, global south is already experiencing those impacts because Europe is just basically buying up everything that's there. So a small but limited role for this winter, but really we need to start thinking about already the next winter and getting out of the situation that we're in right now because of the successful lobbying of the fossil fuel industry. We certainly shouldn't be locking ourselves into more gas dependency. Tara, the whole time, the question that was screaming in my mind was why, why, why? And I, I love that you actually ended with talking about the fossil fuel industry and their lobbying. So is this the main reason why we are sort of stuck and continuing to invest all this effort and money into gas? Or what would you say are the reasons we haven't gone further? This crisis didn't appear overnight. I mean, Europe's oversized reliance on fossil fuels in general, and then imported fossil fuels and imported gas from Russia. These have been known for a very long time. You know, this isn't the first time that Russia invaded Ukraine. I mean, in 2014, when Russia invaded Ukraine, this whole crisis happened before, and all of these debates came up again. And at the time, you know, Europe was debating setting its its 2030 renewable energy and energy saving targets, actually debating whether they would set them at all. And at the time, the gas industry was lobbying furiously against that. Every single step of the way, we've seen the fossil fuel industry lobbying against genuine solutions, energy savings and renewables, and all the associated measures around that, and lobbying for gas infrastructure, higher gas demand. Now we see them lobbying for hydrogen produced from gas, which is just crazy because it's more expensive. It just increases your reliance on gas imports. But that's where we are. Julian, did you have something to add to that? Yes, just to jump in on this, the problem is compounded by basically the gas industry being given a central role in the process of infrastructure planning at the EU level. So um, through the transmission systems operators, the gas industry basically makes the, the proposals on which um, gas grids are planned. And the same is being repeated for hydrogen, where we have huge plants of um, grids that will supply um, sectors where we shouldn't even be, be using hydrogen. And this is basically all following the wishes of, of the gas industry. Um, the list of new gas and oil infrastructure projects proposed with the Repower EU initiative um, was also based on proposals by 
NSOC, the Organization of Gas Transmission Systems Operators. So um, basically, they're structurally um, advantaged. And this is a massive cause of the conflict of interest, obviously, because they essentially contribute to planning the infrastructure that they then themselves operate and earn rents on. That is definitely a really scary reality. So we've talked a lot about what the situation is now. I want to also now talk a little bit about the long term in terms of improving energy efficiency, not only in building and heating appliances, but also in the industry. This is key to declining gas demand. So what do you think, in your opinion, should be the focus of EU policy to achieve this? Julian. So. Incentives and market-based instruments are clearly not going to be enough. For instance, we need to ban the installation of new fossil heating systems. It's clear that the climate cannot afford them. We also need minimum energy performance standards, which are being discussed in the context of the buildings directive, which is said to be adopted possibly by the end of the year. We also here need to stop making things worse by abolishing fossil heating subsidies, which are still very prominent, for instance, in uh, co-generation, which is basically fossil heat and power production, which is then used for, for district heating. We also need to do a lot to promote the installation of individual heat pumps um, and obviously insulation to keep the heat inside homes. Because we have labor shortages to pull all this off, we also need upskilling and vocational training initiatives where really member states need to take the lead. Furthermore, we obviously need to accelerate renewable energy installations. So um, not just talking about wind and solar energy here, which are the obvious suspects, but also geothermal energy, where we have a huge potential to use geothermal energy for heating in Eastern Europe, for instance. In industry specifically, we need to shift to cleaner technologies. So yeah, that's just an overview of some of the things that we need to be working on to pull off the energy transition and get out of gas as quickly as possible. Tara? Yeah, I agree with everything that, that Julian said. I mean, when it comes to industry, uh, you know, they've really been sort of really babied a bit for a while. I think, you know, they've really been left out of, of climate policy the current crisis just shows how they've had access to absurdly cheap gas, gas that didn't have priced in the geopolitical risks that we're all you know, suffering from, and Ukrainians especially are suffering from that right now. And in Europe, industry uses about a third of, of European gas supply. And in some countries like Germany, it is the biggest user. It's not household, it's not electricity production, it's, it's industry. One other part of this that we haven't talked about is the gas industry itself. The gas industry is going to have to start to face up to the fact that it is going to be downsized. We're going to have to start talking about decommissioning. And that comes back to the point that Julian made earlier about the role of gas infrastructure companies in planning at the local level and at the national level and at the European level. If you ask a gas pipeline company, do you need more gas pipelines? They're going to say that you need them. But you need to be able as a government to look independently as whether that's true or not and make the investments based on the public good. Before we move on with the interview, let's recall some key concepts to understand clearly where we are in terms of climate targets and energy policies. We mentioned that to stay within the Paris Agreement target of 1.5% Celsius, the use of fossil gas must end by 2035. But how far are we from the climate target? According to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, 
the IPCC we currently live in is 1.1 degrees Celsius warmer world, a level that is already affecting Europe. We have all seen heat waves and drought become frequent and worse. To get net zero, the European Union has approved several regulations. For instance, the Fit for 55 package, which is a set of proposals to update the EU legislation in areas such as transportation or energy efficiency. In the context of war, there were measures put in place to avoid gas shortages this winter, such as Repower EU or the Gas Shortage Regulation, which allow the member states to look for alternatives in gas supplies. Let's also take a moment to recall the EU taxonomy, a labeling system that indicates to the investors what is green. As mentioned before, certain gas is included in this list of environmentally friendly activities. We're now going to jump into the second part of the interview, which is about sketching solutions. Julian and Tara, very concretely, what do you think is the best way to reduce dependence on Russian fossil gas imports without risking our climate goals? Tara? The best time for us to have done this was eight years ago when Russia invaded Ukraine the last time. But unfortunately, we, we don't, we've lost those eight years. Time is really of the essence. We need to really accelerate the energy transition effectively. We know what we need to do. It's not always as easy to do as setting a target. I think that has to be said. But that's what we need to do. We need to set much higher targets for the build out of renewables, the building renovations. We need to insulate homes. We need to start with the the poorest performing homes. We need to focus on vulnerable communities and households. We need to replace gas boilers with heat pumps and district heating and make sure that district heating is not being run off gas. We need to accelerate offshore wind, onshore wind. We need to go for geothermal. We need to start mapping out waste heat and and other sources of local heat and national heat. Demand response is so important in the electricity market for us to reduce the amount of hours that gas is setting the price in the gas market, in the wholesale market. We need solar. We need solar farms. We need rooftop solar. Uh, We need to support communities uh, and people who want to do this. That means ensuring that communities can join cooperatives, set them up, and that people can, if they have access to a suitable roof or there's local roofs in their neighborhood, on hospitals, on supermarkets, on schools, that they're all supported in, in, in being part of this massive transition as well. Julian? So one massive missed um, opportunity to supply uh, additional fossil gas through existing pipelines while protecting the climate has um, actually been missed so far. That's methane flare capture in um, the Middle East and North Africa. There's a lot of oil extraction going on there and we have existing gas pipelines. And in oil production, uh, methane, meaning fossil gas, basically comes as a byproduct. And that's just vented or flared into the atmosphere where methane acts actually as a more dangerous and quicker greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. And that's largely just not being captured at the moment. Um, I've seen a very interesting uh, feasibility study by um, a company called Capterio recently. They operate satellites that measure methane emissions from orbit. And basically, bottom line is that uh, we could replace up to 15% of the gas that Europe got from Russia before the Russian invasion, by simply promoting methane flare capture projects in energy partnerships with Middle Eastern North African countries like Algeria. These projects have build times of six to nine months. Um, If we had started doing this 
at scale in February, when we already knew what situation we were going to, to end up in, we could already be getting gas from those um, projects um, for this winter. So that's just a massive missed opportunity. But I mean, it's, it's not too late. Thanks for that. It's so good to hear about all of these possible options, though, of course, once again, it definitely is a missed opportunity. So in terms of energy saving and rationing, they seem to be more controversial solutions, but we can see that perhaps they are necessary. What are your thoughts on the feasibility and need for this? Dara? I mean, the, the conversation is really different in different countries. I have to say in Ireland, which where I'm more familiar with the debate, when the minister suggests speed limit, it's met by many people as not a practical solution. Yet I know, for example, in Germany, there's a huge ferocious row because they're the minister. It's being blocked in the government that they're not proposing a speed limit. So I think politically it is very tricky and it's important for politicians to navigate this properly because it is so important. There needs to be clear hierarchies on who needs access to energy first. And I think, in fairness, many, many governments either have already drafted these plans or in the, in the process of finalizing them. We really need to make sure that the focus is on the large energy consumers. Those are also practically the ones who can do the most to contribute to the energy savings. So that means obviously heavy industry. But I also think businesses like offices, you know, offices leaving lights on all the time or heating uh, on the weekends or heating floors that where no one is there. Uh, shops can do a lot as well. Supermarkets. These are all things that we should be addressing anyway. But now is a very good time for us to be uh, having conversations about those things. But we also in all of this need to remember that for some many households across Europe, this is really not a conversation to be having with them. They're already rationing energy because they simply can't afford to use it right now. Loud and clear, Tara, I hear you saying we should focus on the biggest consumers of energy and gas and non-renewables and that we also need to keep in mind and make sure that there are resources given to private shops, people, etc. to be able to move towards more renewable energy. On investments, if we take the long shot, do you think we can at least say that the EU has tried to avoid perpetuating future gas consumption and carbon lock-in? What can be done? Dara, let's start with you. Yeah, it's really hard to give a, a simple answer to this because the picture is, is really mixed. I mean, I think governments and, and the commission are giving out very mixed signals it's broadly positive, I have to say. Civil society campaigned for a 45% renewable energy target for 2030 for Europe for years. Okay, it's 10 years too late. There's been two Russian invasions of Ukraine and a rapidly accelerating climate crisis. But now we finally have a proposal on the table for a 45% renewable energy target. Same with the energy savings target. The numbers being discussed now are numbers that were first proposed by civil society back in 2012, like so, so 10 years ago. Uh, things that NGOs have been asking for for a long time. Other things like a proposed gas boiler phase out, accelerated rates of building renovations. These are all things that have been proposed by the Commission, are being taken up in, in national policies as well. I mean, many governments are not waiting for the EU level. They're just going ahead and doing it. This is a very different conversation to the one that we were having in 2014. Back then, the entire focus was on diversification, just looking for alternative suppliers of gas. That is still part of the conversation today, of course. But, but now I think the focus is very much more on accelerating the energy transition, assuming, of course, that all of the policies that we're talking about are actually implemented. Julian, what about you? 
So I definitely agree that there's a lot of positive um, momentum at the moment, but the national level member states still need to implement what is promised. So I've seen a recent report by think tank Amber that uh, EU governments um, have 50 billion euros in new spending on gas imports and related infrastructure. And um, a lot of this money should clearly go into um, efficiency, renewables, all those kinds of actual solutions that address both climate change and energy security by bringing down gas demand, because we can only spend this money once. And we really need to think about spending it wisely. Otherwise, uh, taking the long view, we uh, won't be looking back and thinking, oh, well, we did what we could. But instead, we will be kicking ourselves that we financed all this new um, gas infrastructure that we didn't use, paid for dearly, and um, that potentially even increased our greenhouse gas emissions. Thanks so much for that, Tara and Julian. We also wanted to focus a little on the role of hydrogen. So in terms of hydrogen as a green alternative in the energy transition, do you think there are certain sectors that could support this? And does this commodity have any limitations, Dara? Yes, a lot of limitations. I think, you know, on the surface, hydrogen is amazing. It's the most abundant element in the universe. You can use it in theory for anything. But pretty quickly, when you get under the surface, you realize that it's hugely problematic. I mean, the first problem is that hydrogen is not actually an energy source. It's an energy vector. So it's just a way to carry energy from one form into another. And, and of course, it's an input for, for industry, so for chemicals industry, for example. And then you start to realize that it all comes down to where you're getting your hydrogen from. If you're producing it from fossil fuels, you're going to have a very carbon intensive hydrogen, and that's no good. If you're producing it from renewable electricity, and in that case, it really has to be from additional renewable electricity installations, so you're not just using the renewable electricity that's already on the grid for other purposes, then it can be really a useful product but it's not going to be very widely available. We're not going to have huge volumes. It makes sense to use it for heavy industry where you need high temperatures, like we've talked about chemicals and steel, areas like that. It could also make sense perhaps in transportation, in aviation and shipping, but hydrogen ships could be a derivative, something like ammonia, for example. But do ammonia ships, do they exist? How far away are they? Um, same with airplanes. Is that really feasible? It's, I, I think it's still early days. So yes, it has a role to play. Um, but it really depends where it comes from. And because it's going to be scarce, we really have to think carefully about where we use it. Thanks for that, Tara. So basically, hydrogen is not a silver bullet, as industry would like us to believe, and we need to use it sparingly. The last question, really, to end this conversation, and this is something we always ask our guests, are there any suggestions or priorities you would like to pass on to the EU or to our listeners especially in the run-up to this upcoming worrying winter? Let's start with you, Tara. I think that European politicians need to do their best to protect the most vulnerable households. And I think one of the ways to do that is to put a windfall profit tax on energy companies that have been making obscene profits. I mean, just astronomical profits. It has to be said like last year and this year. I think that's one way to help fund that because it's an enormous pressure on state budgets to be trying to compensate for these enormous price increases. That's sort of in the immediate. But I also think that we need to recognize that we're in this situation because politicians have been listening and giving the fossil fuel industry what they want. As Julian just said, it is not because of climate policy that we're in this situation. And 
yeah, I would ask them to maybe listen to the civil society and to climate NGOs and to environmental activists a little bit more. That would definitely be a very good thing to be doing now and in the future. Don't listen so much to people with vested interests. That's very clear. What about you, Julian? I completely agree with Tara that a wind vortex is a crucial measure to adopt now. And I welcome, obviously, that uh, the Commission is now actually going to propose it as well, as was announced in the State of the Union. The key question then is how to distribute those up to 140 billion, I think, that the European Commission expects to collect with measures um, targeting windfall profits. For citizens themselves, I don't feel qualified to give uh, energy advice. I would say it helps to uh, consult uh, an energy consultancy professional. For the political level, yes, it's absolutely crucial to see how we got to this situation. And we need to look also at the process that has produced the current outcomes. It's crucial to address the conflict of interest inherent in letting industry bodies set standards and plan infrastructure. We have to get to zero, ideally by 2030 or earlier, and we are currently not doing that. So that's the most fundamental point I would like to make. Where gas is concerned, absolutely going in the wrong direction and creating huge problems for us in the future, either because of failed investments or because of completely sabotaging our own climate policy. I genuinely hope that a lot of EU policymakers and national policymakers are listening to this conversation. I have definitely found it very insightful. I've learned a lot. Thank you so much, Tara and Julian, for making the time and for joining us in this podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. And this was it for the fifth episode of the Bull Europe podcast, the podcast of the European Union office of the Heinrich Bull Stiftung in Brussels. Before we say goodbye, just a few more details about Julian's report, which sheds light on this episode. The Future Role of Gas in a Climate-Neutral Europe is a policy paper based on the discussions of an expert group convened by the Heinrich Bull Stiftung European Union and Environmental Action Germany. You can read the whole report on eu.bull.org or eu.boell.org. And that's it for today. Until the next episode, goodbye. <laughs>